purely from the non-duality of primordial consciousness and dharmadhatu until your world is filled with such pure vision. And this entails four visions on the Tutgelo. Four visions, four sequential visions. And the final one is called the vision of the extinction of phenomena into ultimate reality. And what that means is that all impure appearances, you being in the center of, you being in the center of your mandala, all impure appearances, all appearances that are conditioned by your own mental afflictions and by karma, all of that, are extinguished. They dissolve without trace forever, irreversibly, into dhammata, into ultimate reality. And you are finished forever. Within the, you are now in the center of your mandala, and all appearances are only pure appearances. And yet, in some inconceivable way, because after all, dhammakai is inconceivable, while in the center of your mandala, all appearances are pure, without visualizing anything. That's simply how they arise, unmediated, unfiltered, unconditioned, directly from rikpa, without configuration by karma, klesha, or anything of that sort. At the same time, you have a non-dual awareness of everybody else's reality. And that's, of course, where the compassion comes from. Everybody, each individual being in the center of his or her own reality. So, from that vantage point, we've now really, we're going to kind of the pinnacle of upeksha, equanimity. Attachment to that which is close. It doesn't even say people who are close. It just says, nyiring chatang. So, attachment to the near. What's nearer than our own awareness? What's nearer than that? And if you fathom the nature of your own awareness, you really penetrate to its nature, is it really there or not, then you realize the emptiness of your own awareness, right? that it does not inherently exist, and the emptiness of your own awareness is nirvana. It doesn't get much closer than that. If you're looking for something really close, There's nothing closer than your awareness and there's nothing closer than the essential nature, the ultimate nature of your own awareness. There's nothing closer than nirvana. So relative to nirvana, everything else is far away. Like all impure appearances. Samsara is over yonder. My thoughts, my feelings, my dreams, my mental afflictions, my, my, my. As I'm pointing my finger at this object and that appearance and so forth and so on, and he's not very nice, but she's really nice, and that place stinks, but that's really lovely. And all out there, that's distant. So the challenge in Dzogchen is to give up attachment to nirvana and give up aversion to samsara. And to dwell in taknyam, ronyam, rochik, the one taste and equal purity of samsara and nirvana. And of course, that's possible if and only if you're just dwelling in Rigpa. If you're not, then it's make-believe. Right. So it's quite extraordinary. Well, Nasu, you want to practice? <laughs> Bit of a stretch. We're going to go
Settle your body in a state of equipoise. Balance between relaxation and vigilance sustained with stillness. Settle your respiration evenly, free of the effort to expel or to, in, or to inhale the breath, free of any constraints that might inhibit the effortless flow of the breath. Release all thoughts and concerns about that which no longer exists and does not yet exist. And let your awareness non-conceptually come to rest in the present, which is so fleeting, one may wonder, is even this real? another utter sense of mental release. Let your awareness be still, naturally clear. Rest in that flow of knowing that is so near, so intimate, the knowing of being aware.
this present awareness, as you examine closely, can you identify that from which it emerges? That which does not arise, not really arise from anywhere, is unborn. Can you identify, as you closely scrutinize your own awareness, the boundaries? between awareness and not-awareness. Awareness is present, awareness is absent. Can you identify where it is and where it stops? real abode of awareness. Where is it to be found? that which is really not found anywhere is not present and does not exist. And 
as you closely examine your own awareness, observes closely, does it vanish? Does it dissolve, pass away? Does it cease? that for which no cessation is found is unceasing. releasing all grasping onto awareness and not awareness. Rest in unborn awareness that is unceasing and nowhere present. From this perspective, arouse the question, why couldn't all sentient beings dwell in equanimity, free of attachment and aversion to that which is close and far? Arouse the aspiration, may we all dwell in such equanimity.
I shall lead us to all such equanimity. I shall lead us all to such equanimity, free of attachment, aversion, even to samsara and nirvana. May I receive the blessings of all the awakened ones from the Guru to enable me to lead all beings to such a state of equipoise, of perfect equanimity, arouses aspiration with each in-breath as you imagine bringing in, drawing in, or simply accepting the light of blessings from all directions Fusing, saturating your entire being, and with every outbreath, breathe out this light of purification that all obscurations may be dispelled.
So this morning I received a very encouraging response from the personal secretary of His Holiness. Uh, very strong encouragement, move full speed ahead. There will definitely be an endorsement from His Holiness for creating this contemplative scientific research facility in Bangalore. <coughs> so very encouraging. But yesterday I received a message from a very close friend of mine in India, very well educated, educated actually at the well, I think it's probably the premier institute of higher learning in India. It's called the Ind- India Institute of Technology. It's more competitive than MIT or Caltech. It's, it's really, really up there. And so he's a graduate of that, obviously extremely bright. And when I mentioned to him the possibility of bringing in some Indian neuroscientists, psychologists, into this endeavor, he was very, he was very how do you say, hesitant, to say the least. He said, you know, when I was studying at my own institute, took a course in cognitive science of some sort, maybe psychology, and he said, the professor would not allow us to use the word mind. <laughs> would not allow. You talk about behavior, that's scientific. You talk about the brain, that's scientific. Talk about the mind, not in this classroom, Buster. To say that this is a form of dementia would be universally true. But this should occur in India actually kind of breaks my heart. Because I really do actually feel India has the greatest heritage for something like four or 5,000 years of any culture on the planet for rigorous, rational, Im- profoundly empirical exploration of the nature of the mind, the origins of suffering, the origins of genuine happiness, multiple dimensions of consciousness, the role of consciousness in the universe. I don't think China, the Aztecs, the Mayans, let alone the Europeans, the Jewish, I don't think any of them matched it. I really don't. And there it is. Can you imagine? At the, at the pinnacle of their higher education, the Eurocentric ideological domination of this country is so thorough, they've strangled them to death. There's all kinds of imperialism. It's, it's saturated by racism, that's just for starters, economic and so forth and so forth. But ideological imperialism is perhaps the most pernicious because they've really, of course it's not a universal statement, are there psychologists? Well, in fact, I wrote today, this morning, to a friend of mine who knows a lot of Indian psychologists, neuroscientists, said, give me some names. They've got to be there. They're definitely there, who have not been brainwashed. Who have not been brainwashed. Who are at least open-minded and highly trained, very, very professional. I want to know who they are. I want to invite them to the party. And all the rest of them who won't even talk about mine, good, stay home. Stay home. You'll die off sooner or later. So this whole mentality was kind of formulated, crystallized by Thomas H. Huxley in the late 19th century when he formulated what he called the church scientific. And that is, it, that's what he called it. Of course, it's the institutionalization of scientific materialism that said and insists there are only four gospels in the book of nature. And they're the gospel of matter, energy, space, and time, and nothing else is allowed. Therefore, consciousness, mind, subjective experience either is simply denied altogether because you can't find it in space, time, matter, or energy. It's nowhere to be found, in which case, okay, then it doesn't exist. So you've just actually performed this massive lobotomy on yourself to deny the existence of your own subjective experience. It really, really boggles the mind. You can either do that, which quite a number of people have done, the radical behaviorist, the eliminative materialist, subjective experience doesn't exist. One very prominent uh, mind scientist said, qualia don't exist. He's the darling of the scientific materialist. Qualia, you know, actual experiences of color, sound, they don't exist. It's just photons, you know. Photons, sound waves, and so forth. 
Amazing. So either you just simply deny its existence altogether and say, as I said, there's space, time, matter, and energy, and that's all. And there are emergent properties, of course. Or you can say, okay, we'll let it back in. It, it just feels a little bit too embarrassing to actually say in public, you know, that subjective experience doesn't exist, mind consciousness doesn't exist. But we'll allow in consciousness through the back door and we'll allow it in if and only if we equate it with something that is space, time, matter, energy. In other words, the brain or behavior. Then you can come back in. And that's what's happened now. That is the state of the affairs. Globally, China, India, South America, I've been there, North America, Europe, Australia, pretty much, this is the absolutely dominant worldview. And what they're so keen on is we banish the supernatural. We deny the supernatural for lack of evidence. There's no supernatural, no God, no soul, no, no heaven, no hell, no transmigration, reincarnation, none of that business. As we said, Matter, energy, space, time. That's it. Emergent properties. Okay, they get really complex. It's a very interesting view. I mean, it's completely psychotic, but it's very interesting. Because if one looks to the origins of the physical universe, go back to the Big Bang, 13.7 billion years ago. It's a magnificent theory. It's a brilliant theory. Very good working hypothesis based on empirical evidence. Superb math. But then if you ask, okay, what, what caused it? What caused it? I mean, that's a simple question. We have, here it is. This is an event. This is an event, our universe. What caused it? They have various ideas, but none of them are scientific. Because a scientific theory, unlike philosophical speculation, a scientific theory is one you can put to the test. If you can't, there's just no reason to call it science. Then anything goes. Fairies, leprechauns, anything. Oh, this, my scientific theory of leprechauns is they're green, but they're invid invisible to, you know, whatever. But... but that's not science. That's, okay, that's your belief. Cool. There's no scientific theory of the origins of the universe. And so it's kind of assumed that kind of it just came out of nothing. And so that's supernatural nihilism. That's supernatural nihilism. So supernaturalism is how you start science. It's based upon science. The scientific view of the universe is based upon supernatural nihilism. Okay? Then eventually at some point, like on our little planet here, we have the emergence of life, three and a half, four billion years ago, something like that. There is no scientific theory of the origins of life in the universe. There's all kinds of ideas. They all contradict each other. None of them have been tested. And no one has ever even really gotten close to replicating, actually creating life, living organisms that reproduce, eat, and poop, and all of that, out of just organic chemicals. Nobody's done it. They're not even close. They've been saying they've been, they're, they've been close for more than 50 years, and they're not. So they haven't been able to do it, and they have no scientific theory of how it happened. Because the scientific theory is one you can test. And so modern biology, if you ask the origins of life, th this is based upon supernatural physics and chemistry. Because they're insistent. Oh, really? It would be very hard to find a biologist who disagrees with what I'm about to say. All of life emerge out of complex configurations of organic molecules and electricity. In other words, physics and chemistry. Um... And, and, and your theory is, we don't have one. Is there anything in physics or chemistry that would in any way suggest or predict that life would emerge from inorganic chemicals and electricity? No. So it's not the physics and chemistry we know, it's supernatural physics and chemistry. A kind of chemistry in physics that nobody knows about. But that's the origins of life. And give us time and more money and we'll find some way to 
prove what we already believe and will, are absolutely refusing to doubt. So biology is based upon supernatural physics and chemistry, and then we have the mind sciences. And the mind sciences have no theory whatsoever for the origins of consciousness. Not on the planet, not in a human fetus, not in anything else. There is no scientific theory. Tons of books, tons of speculation, pretty much all mutually contradict. No consensus, no knowledge, and no scientific theory that can be put to any test whatsoever. And moreover, they certainly have not been able to generate consciousness in robots, computers, or anything else. In other words, the mind sciences. But nevertheless, just take my word for it. Consciousness, all mental states, arise out of sufficiently complex configurations of biological processes. Neurons, synapses, dendrites, and so forth. In other words, the mind sciences are based in supernatural biology. It's all based on supernatural views for which there's no scientific evidence, no scientific theory. It's science based upon supernaturalism. Gosh, I w I, when I look at that, I say, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I, I expected more from you. Because I love science, but you're really letting me down here. No theory for the origin of the universe, no theory for the origins of life, no theory for the origins of consciousness. Um, I was hoping for more. Well, that's why I left Western civilization and went to India. And so here's an alternative theory. That is, with the materialist, they've taken consciousness out of the universe and either not allowed it in it at all or l let it in as the lowest of the lowest of the lowest, a mere secretion of complex neuronal activity in the brain. In other words, sit in your closet and shut up because we're really busy here understanding the real world. You know? So if they denote it down beneath the janitor of the universe and it doesn't do anything and, and, and don't... And if you do anything, we're going to call it placebo, placebo effect. So just shut up. We will not give you credit for anything because you don't do anything. Just shut up. Okay? So the absolute demotion of consciousness into either nothing or marginally more than nothing. Need some fresh air. <laughs> Good. Thank goodness Eurocentric civilization is not the only one on the planet. How about this other view that you can, you can put to the test of experience? It's called, gee, how would you do this? Maybe shamata, vipassana, and tektu. That might do it to realize directly, through your own experience, the existence of dhammadhatu, that's emptiness. To realize through your own experience primordial consciousness, that's texture. And then to realize through tutgel the power, the capacity, the infinite capacity, really, of that dimension of consciousness, yeshiki lung, the energy of primordial consciousness, which manifests big time in tutgel. You see it. And also then it flows through you, and you are able to start displaying some of the powers of the Buddha. And those three, the absolute space of phenomena, the dhammadhatu, primordial consciousness, the, and the energy of primordial consciousness, primordially non-dual, non-local, atemporal, but that out of which the entire phenomenal world emerges. Now there's a theory you can actually put to the test. Of course, you had to invite consciousness back in and put it on the throne and take it out of the, you know, the mop room Put it back where it belongs, you know, as absolutely fundamental to the whole universe. So, it's just, so there it is. So I, I want to end on a note of whimsy. I'm really good at whimsy, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> Betty Rose has noticed.
What if? What if the emergence of all consciousness throughout the universe, fundamentally, that is in terms of its ultimate taproot, all consciousness, consciousness of all sentient beings, of course all Buddhas, is none other than primordial consciousness, that crystallizes as substrate consciousness, which then further crystallizes as individual consciousnesses of human, animal, and so forth and so on, but its taproot, fundamental ground, nothing other than primordial consciousness. Well, that's the Dzogchen view. But further now, this is where the whimsy comes in, because I don't know whether this is true or not, but it might be. What about this energy of primordial consciousness, this prana? What if that's the origin of all life in the universe, when a planet first forms and so forth? What if all life consists of configurations, crystallized configurations, of this fundamentally bioenergy, vital energy, that is non-dual from primordial consciousness? What if life emerges not just from a sufficiently complex configurations of chemicals and energy, but from a fundamental energy that's right down there at the ground of the universe? In other words, life is intrinsic to the universe itself as consciousness is intrinsic to the universe itself. And then when it comes to Dhammadhatu, this absolute space of phenomena, what if all configurations of space-time and inanimate mass energy are all emerging out of that? As the environment. So ever so often, I've seen this in, in, in the Dzogchen literature, but many other places as well, it speaks of the nu and ju. The nu is the inanimate environment. And the chu, and it literally means a vessel. And the chu, the chu is kind of the, the nutrition, the juice, the vital essence, that which, that which is all about, the chu. You know. Like the chu of food is the nutrition in the food. That's what makes the food food, right? And so the chu of the nu, the chu, the vital essence of the environment is sentient beings. This was all created for sentient beings. The notion that we just kind of happened along because of some chemicals got sufficiently complex and they said, oh, I'm alive. Nope. You know, life is right at the core. Consciousness is right at the core. And the manifestation of environments, of universes, space-time, mass-energy, configurations, the vessel, that's also at the core, right there in the Dharmadhatu, manifesting when catalyzed. There's a theory you can actually test. But it means that we are not casual and very brief interlopers in the universe, here for a few decades and then snuffed out like a light, which is the ultimate nihilism of materialism. We came from nowhere, we're going nowhere. In the meantime, have a nice time with hedonic pleasures, but you probably won't much. That's one view. Extremely sad, pointless, nihilistic, dehumanizing, demoralizing, disempowering. But if that's the best you got, okay, I guess you can live with that. The other one seems a bit more, how do you say, lively? Has a bit more potential? Upward mobility? Enjoy your day.